You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Melvin Mundy rode a small lifeboat in the dark Atlantic Ocean. towards the light beams of an enormous vessel. He was first mate of his ship and cargo ship, and he had been on watch when blinking lights summoned the ship. Code CS. It meant, What is the name of your vessel? He responded back with the code for the U.S. Robin Moore, a cargo ship, an American ship. He figured that would be it. The world was at war. It was a perilous time, but America was not part of that war. He was carrying cargo. He had no guns. The signal came back. We are pursuing you. And further, send a boat out. Do not use your wireless. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Fortunately, Mundy was not a newbie at all of this. He had been serving in the First World War on the Merchant Marine. He got in a lifeboat and rowed out to communicate in person. As he approached, he realized the signaling ship was large. It was a U-boat with two huge guns and a picture of a laughing cow painted on the hull. The commander spoke to him in German-accented English. What are you carrying? general merchandise, he said. Nonsense. I saw heavy machinery on your deck. Auto parts, Mundy described. Not all the auto parts could fit under the hull. There was a quick delay. Get on board now. Mundy goes on the ship, and in going from his lifeboat into the U-boat actually hurts his foot pretty badly, and he's limping. The German commander tells him, Get your crew and passengers off the vessel. It will be destroyed. How long do I have, Mundy asks. Twenty minutes. It's not enough time, Mundy says. There's an elderly couple. I have passengers. Thirty minutes, maybe. Do not signal SOS. If you do, you will be sunk immediately. Might have surprised Monday. American ships were not supposed to be sunk. There were actually orders, officially, for Germans not to target American ships. But U-boat captains were hungry for supplies they could sink. Their sinkage tonnage was important. That's what everyone looked at. That's how their promotions were based. And auto parts counted as contraband. Monday went back to the ship and announced the news. And... In a chaotic haste, the passengers, including an elderly couple going to retirement from Trinidad to South Africa, grabbed what few things they could. 
sweaters, treasured photos, and crammed onto four lifeboats, put themselves into the ocean. Once they were out, not much longer, they heard a loud crack, and the ship that they were on flamed up. It was then fired upon with bullets repeatedly. Within minutes, the USS Robin Moore was sunk. Some passengers and crew stood up in their life boots to salute the vessel. The U-boat tossed some food and supplies and said they'd radio the position on an open frequency and submerged, leaving them in the Atlantic Ocean. Fortunately, they would soon be rescued by a Brazilian ship. Some of those passengers in the lifeboats thought, if this doesn't bring us into war, what will? As bad as it was, it would not. Elmer has a new pet, and it's a rabbit, and everyone in the theater knows it when the movie is released in 1941. Flannel-wearing Elmer just wants a rabbit pet. He gets Bugs Bunny, who is thinking and opinionated, and he's not happy when he learns that Elmer plans to put him in a cage. A cage? But think of what I could have been. A potential Easter bunny. It makes my blood boil. The audience is in stitches. As they are, when Bob Hope hosts the Academy Awards at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca is nominated 11 times, but the winner will be The Thief of Baghdad. Also notable, John Ford wins Best Actor for The Grapes of Wrath. Winston Churchill's voice is heard on radio sets throughout the United States of America. His nation is under attack. He has single-handedly been fighting the Nazis for over a year. His capital still suffering from the Blaze Blitzes. Men have formed fire brigades in London. In fact, Londoners are becoming experts at disarming Nazi bombs, flicking the back of them, or putting a garbage can over them. To stop the incendiary fire from spreading from the bombs, Churchill asks the American people, Give us the tools and we will finish the job. Charles Lindbergh, the aviator and hero of American transatlantic flight, has a different solution. He speaks before Congress and urges them to make a peace treaty with Nazi Germany. I advocate building strength in America because I believe we can be successful in this hemisphere. I oppose placing our security in an English victory because I believe that such a victory is extremely doubtful. I do not believe the danger in America lies in an invasion from abroad. I believe it lies here in our own midst. Mits. Our own mitts. The placing of our security in the success of foreign armies and the removal of power from the representatives of the people in our own land. So says Lindbergh. He reflects an opinion that's common in the part of the country he's from. In the Midwest, It's a he reflects the opinion of a Congress that's not necessarily opposed to that view. 
Burton K. Wheeler, Senator of Montana, is doing everything he can to keep President Franklin Roosevelt from getting us into a war that will, he says, kill every fourth American boy. When the president hears what Wheeler says, he'll say it's the most dastardly thing that has been said in public discourse in my generation. Bugs Bunny makes an absolute mess of Elmer's house. That's how he protests. He doesn't like his new living quarters or his new lifestyle. Getting out of the cage that Elmer has for him has proven little problem for smart Bugs Bunny. And Elmer's sorry. He brought Bugs in. But America loves it. Bugs Bunny's name will be billed in the movies now from here on out. In Hawaii, a territory of the United States, Takeo Yoshikawa, arrives early in 1941. And he's not just a new resident, nor really is he, as he makes it appear, an employee traveling with a Japanese consular official. He is a spy. He'll fly planes over the harbor and inspect the ships. He'll take notes on defensive measures and fleet movements. He even dives under the harbor, breathing through a reed. Meanwhile, in a little restaurant, the Little Casino in New York's Yorkville District on the Upper East Side. Richard Eichenlund hosts guests, feeds them German food. He also reports on a regular basis to the Gestapo of activities in New York, the center of industry and of shipments to Britain. Leo Wallen painted boats in the harbor, but he's also gathering info on anything sailing to England and reporting to Eichenlund. So does Alex Wheeler-Hill, a truck driver, and Oscar Stabler, who was a barber on transatlantic ships. They would act as couriers for information between spies and American agents. An experienced ship's butcher, Erwin Siegler, would, while butchering meat, also write down what he saw, which ships were leaving, when they were leaving, and gather any information he had. I address you, the members of this new Congress, at a moment unprecedented in the history of the Union. I use the word unprecedented because at no previous time has American security been as seriously threatened from without as it is today. America was not at war, but the world was. For two years, on the land and in the oceans, hostilities in Europe, Africa, Asia, and the high seas. From Time Magazine, looking up from the unreal war news in his paper, a citizen could turn up images of U.S. life as disjointed as the visions of a fever. might see showgirls in Boston dressed up in costumes of the letter V for victory dancing about. He might read about an elephant escaped from a zoo in North Carolina and shot by a prison warden. Joe DiMaggio steps up to the plate in what's going to be 
nothing but hits in the next 56 games and will help his team get to the World Series this year. A 16-year-old boy kills a carpenter for his car. Mrs. Roosevelt's radio talk focused on how Nazi doctrine calls for all German girls to have babies with German soldiers, whether they wish to and whether they are married or not. In a fever, Time magazine says, the mind wanders. Britain has fought alone, but in this year the Nazis will march into Moscow. There's talk of the Japanese taking Siberia from a weakened Russia. Japan is getting more aggressive, insisting that France, now under Vichy control, supposedly independent, a puppet government of the Nazis, will allow them to base 6,000 soldiers in Indonesia near Hanoi. The Vichy French government agrees, and Japan sends 25,000 soldiers. It is in the U.S. view, a hostile action, setting up further attacks. And Japanese assets in the U.S. will be frozen. The United States federal budget is $13 billion in 1941. Unemployment is 10%. Not Great Depression high, but not low either. A stamp costs three cents. Joan Baez is born. So is Anne Rice. So is Neil Diamond. Jesse Jackson. Dick Cheney. And Bernie Sanders. A Gallup poll says 54, 54% of Americans are in favor of helping Britain in the war. 78% would do it if we could do it without going to war ourselves. President Roosevelt worried about secret Nazi plans and documents, one to carve up Latin America into new Nazi administration districts, another to abolish all religions and create one Nazi church. They are threatening our great lifeline, the Panama Canal, Roosevelt says. Dr. Hitchens, the president of Chicago of the University of Chicago says, the American people are drifting into suicide. Speaking of the Lend-Lease Bill proposed by Roosevelt to help England. Deafened by martial music. Committing themselves to a foreign war. Texas populist governor Papio Daniel presides over the states. He's won election and re-election. On the promise of a pension program, everyone over 65 in his state gets $30 a month. He's still working on the sales tax to fund the program. He was a member of a musical trio designed to sell flour that played on low-power stations all across the state. His band was called the Hillbilly Boys, and now he was a politician. Texas chose a radio crooning flour broker, until recently unknown to the public, to be its governor, the New York Times said. Getting that sales tax through wasn't part of the plan when he campaigned, and he's taking some things for it. He needs something. And then, Morris Shepard, Texas's U.S. Senator, dies in 1941. Papio Daniels has a great plan. On April 21, 1941, at San Jacinto, the 105th anniversary of Texas independence, he announces his choice. For Senator, he'll pick Andrew Jackson Houston. That's right, it's Sam Houston's living son. He's 86 years old. 
living, but barely. His daughters don't want him to go to Washington. When reporters call him, he lives in a small house in the desert. When, a, when reporters call him after the announcement, his daughters say he's too tired to answer the telephone. Yet Houston goes to Washington, attends a few meet committee meetings, introduces a single bill, speaks on the floor once, and after 21 days dies, enabling Governor O'Daniel to run for the now open seat. The greatest civil rights march that never happened happens in 1941. Philip Randolph, head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Operators, is ticked off. African Americans are being asked to fight Nazi racism abroad when there's racism at home. The bills that are creating tanks to fight Hitler's Germany won't fund a single job for anyone who isn't white the way that they're written. After threatening a march that was estimated to put up to 50,000 men, women, and children in the nation's capital, the, wash, the March on Washington movement, MOWM, scares the administration. They don't want this. Brokering a deal with recently elected Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, who has contacts with the African American, has contacts with Randolph, civil rights activist and contacts with the administration. FDR issues an executive order banning discrimination in war industries funded by federal dollars. The march is called off. There's no reason to march. State official Dean Acheson orders a full-blooded financial war against Japan, including trade sanctions, oil embargoes, scrap metal bans, and asset freezes. At the same time in Tokyo, the ambassador, Admiral Grew, suggests talks and begins quiet attempts to arrange a meeting between Roosevelt and Prime Minister Fuminmaro Kanoye in order to avoid war. The Japanese have been at war in China for 10 years and in Manchuria since 1937. And it's not going well. They haven't achieved yet their objectives and now the asset freezing is further crippling their supply of oil and scrap metal needed. Amid all this danger, a senator with a bowl haircut, recognizable and covered well in Washington, is Gerald Nye. He believes arms manufacturers and bankers, Eastern pundits, got the country into World War I and now they're doing it again. He held committees throughout the 1930s looking into the reasons for World War I, putting the blame on bankers. And now he has a new opponent. Hollywood. Films that are encouraging warmongering. Hollywood, he said, is drugging the American people with their films. War, Nye says, is not inevitable. In spite of what we hear every day in movies, in pundit talks, and fireside chats. He'll represent North Dakota up until 1945 when his views will be, needless to say, out of fashion. Earlier, we spoke of the sinking of the Robin Moore, destroyed in the Atlantic. And we can think of it today and the reaction to that you might expect from Congress. Reaction to Congress in 1941 on an attack on an American ship was, well, it might be surprising. First, Gerald Nye of North Dakota said, 
It was probably not an attack from a German ship. It was probably a British ship. Of course, he had no evidence when he said it. There'd be no reason for the Germans to do this. It wouldn't be to their advantage. He later had to withdraw his statement. Others, like Pat McCarran of Nevada, said, this is nothing to get excited about. Others pointed to the Panay incident seven years earlier, when an American ship was targeted and destroyed by the Japanese. We didn't go to war then. Roosevelt, for his part, was outraged by the brutality of leaving Americans on the high seas to fend for themselves after destroying the vessel. We must take this as a warning to the United States not to resist the Nazis' movement and world conquest. It's a warning that America may use the high seas of the world only with Nazi consent. Burton K. Wheeler, senator from Montana, isolationist, disagrees. He points out 70% of the cargo on the Robin Moore was what both British and Germans consider to be contraband. They should have expected the possibility of what happened to them. German assets are frozen in the United States. German and Italian consulates were closed, with the exception of the embassies in the capitals. Almost an end to diplomatic relations. Germany, in return, closes the U.S. consulates as well. There is parsing in Congress. Some are calling for ships to be armed. Others are saying not to do anything, says one senator. How we react to the incident depends on how Germany does. None of them knew at the time that the U-boat found Robin Moore because a spy had tipped the sailing date and route to Germany five days before it set out. But it would be discovered soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Charles Foster Kane is... Sure, he started the war. But do you think if it hadn't been for Mr. Kane, the United States would have the Panama Canal? Charles Foster Kane is nothing more or less than a communist! Kane, governor... Listen, when the voters of this state and Mrs. Kane learn what I found out about Mr. Kane and a certain little blondie named Susan Alexander, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. I'm going to skin Mr. Charles Foster Kane alive. I'm going to marry him next week at the 
White House. Emily, I hear you've been stepping out with Charlie Kane. I... Of course I love him. I gave him $60 million. Well, of course I love him. He's the richest man in America. Bosley Crowther, New York Times Movie Review. Now that the returns are in from most of the local journalistic precincts, and Orson Welles' Citizen Kane has been overwhelmingly selected as one of the great, if not the greatest, motion picture of all time, this department rather finds itself with the uncomfortable feeling of a cat regarding a king. For we, in spite of the fact that we cast our vote in favor of it, frankly went to the polls with our fingers dextrous dexterously crossed, and came away vaguely uneasy about the absolute wisdom of the choice. Mr. Wells has made an absorbing, exciting motion picture, and there is no question but what compared with the average it is vastly superior. But is it, as some of the more enthusiastic vote-casters have called it, the greatest film ever made? Is it indeed a great picture saying great with awe in one's voice? And does it promise much for the future of its amazing young producer. We, a minority feline, are not altogether certain. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. France was Germany's opponent in 1940, but the Vichy government of Marshal Patan, an unoccupied part of France, ostensibly represents an unoccupied part of France, but increasingly seems a puppet. At least that's how the Brits view it, as fighting erupts between even the French and the British on the Mediterranean and in the Middle East. The United States keeps diplomatic relations open with Vichy France, hoping that they can get influence and to get Patan away from Germany's orbit. In Marsal, to stay in the government's good graces, the U.S. agreed to grain shipments and petroleum shipments. As a diplomat said, we are keeping in contact with local groups. We had strict instructions not to keep any diaries, books, or papers. If we sent anything out about, say, resistance activities, we encoded them. It was very 18th century, simple code books, really childish. Roosevelt felt that Marshal Patton seemed to be drifting toward German demands. The British were not happy about American actions towards Vichy France, which they considered a fiction. You can always count on the Americans to do the right thing, Churchill once said, after they've tried everything else. The various Germans spying on the Americans and the cargo going through New York would sometimes report to Franz Duquesne. He had a fake business in Wall Street. He was also an expert spy. The best. He had spied on the United States in World War I, and the Americans knew it, but he escaped capture. He was brazen. He would often see if people were following him, know who they are, sometimes even confront them. He would write to defense firms like Grumman, in Long Island, New York, and he'd say he was a student and interested. It was amazing with this simple process, the type of things he would get, aircraft plans, bomb design, how factories were constructed so he could see all the weak points, how to set them on fire. Duquesne hated the British. Duquesne hated the British. 
But he also got money from the Nazis. It is true that prior to 1914, the United States often has been disturbed by events in other continents. We had even engaged in two wars with European nations and in a number of undeclared wars in the West Indies, in the Mediterranean, and in the Pacific for the maintenance of American rights and for the principles of peaceful commerce. The first president elected to a third term, and the only president, takes office in 1941. Roosevelt assures the nation will not enter a foreign war. The 1940 Democratic platform says, we will not participate in foreign wars and will not send troops outside the Americas. Note, the Americas and not just America in that statement. This is language agreed to by Wheeler, by Walsh, other key isolationists who are Democrats in Congress. FDR simply insists on adding except in cases of attack. The parties united on that, in, except in cases of attack. But FDR also wants to help Britain. Churchill's government has indicated they can no longer pay for supplies they need. And if he cannot pay, they must ditch the war effort or be armed. The cash and carry policy where Brits will pay for military equipment from the United States, we will willingly sell it. The British will bring it over, can no longer be effective. FDR comes up with an idea. Lend lease. We will loan and we will deliver. The country is not majority isolationist. We cited that poll earlier and a big gap between those who believe we should help Britain and its allies and those who don't want to do anything. There's a lot of variety in between. David Walsh, senator from Massachusetts, said the idea of guns going to the British now, bombs, boats, we may need those for our own defense someday. Don't take it from our American boys in the future. Roosevelt makes what will be the argument of 1941, and it involves a simple household instrument. What do I do in a crisis? I don't say, neighbor, my garden hose cost me $15. You have to pay me $15. I don't want $15. I want my garden hose back after the war. So let's give Britain that garden hose. Let's give Britain the equipment it needs to fight. And the hidden message in all of this, and I think what everyone needs to understand about the interventionist versus isolationist debates going on 1940-1941, is that it isn't all just let's jump in to the war. There's a healthy amount of people who are interventionists because they want the British to do the fighting. In other words, support them now so we don't have to fight. That's hidden in there. Let's give them the garden hose so we don't have to put a fire out in our own house. That's not what he says. Of this garden hose business, Senator Robert Taft of Ohio is opposed. He compares war supplies more to chewing gum than a fire hose. If I lend chewing gum, I don't want it back. But Roosevelt has a secret weapon in this debate. 
over the proposal that will be called Lend-Lease, a proposal that will continue into the mid-1940s and actually be brought back in 2022. The Ukraine Lend-Lease Act just recently passed in the Senate. But back to 1941, Roosevelt has a secret weapon. That I who saw service during the entire period of the last war, and I know what it is to then send men to the shambles of trenches. His opponent in the election just six months ago, the man who wanted to be president instead of him, who attacked him relentlessly through the summer and fall, Wendell Wilkie. If you elect me president of the United States, I shall never send an American boy to fight in any European war. Since the election, Wilkie has offered to help his country in this crisis. He's been, Roosevelt saw the opportunity. He sent Wilkie to Britain as his special envoy. What better message to send to Winston Churchill, who's impressed by this tall and courageous man? What better message to send than for Roosevelt to send his former opponent, a Republican, a show of unity and support for Britain in the country? Wilkie will remain a Republican, but will support this policy. He still wants to seek his party's nomination in 1944. A lot of the GOP don't want him. He's not a popular man, at least in the GOP Congressional Caucus. Roosevelt will ask him for something more. Come back from Britain and speak to Congress in support of my Lend-Lease plan. He threw in something different. Idris Sullivan said of the jazz player he had played with in 1941, he had that Kansas City style, fast. I met Bird blowing every night at the Kentucky Club. They'd start at 4 o'clock after the other clubs closed, and they'd go sometimes to 12 noon. We heard about this Charlie Parker, but we had a player in our band, Porter, who had a photographic memory. He could play all the solos. We weren't scared. That first night we played, Parker came to see him. He was listening to Porter. We thought we had him. We thought we showed him there. When we finished, we had this jam session, and Parker joined us, and they were both really blowing. But Porter could play everything that Charlie Parker did, so we weren't worried. We were still with Porter. And afterwards, we talked to Porter, and, and we said, Porter, you did good. You kept up with everything that Charlie Parker was playing. Porter said, I did, but he thought of it first. That was Parker. He was changing jazz recording already, but it's early, 1941. It's just the beginning said another player of Parker. Everything was music for him. He'd hear dogs barking, and he'd throw that into the mix, or the trees and the leaves that he heard on the way over to the show. Or maybe some girl would walk past on the dance floor, and he'd look at something she was wearing, and that would give him the idea for a solo.
but already jazz metronome magazine, said of Parker, the tone is rubberiness, and he's a tendency to play too many notes. But it's compensated by the new ideas he finds. A strange coalition opposes Roosevelt and what is called a step-by-step plan to bring America into a European war. Alf Landon, former political opponent, Herbert Hoover, former president and political opponent, conservative Republicans appear with John J. Lewis, head of the liberal labor CIO, to impose interventionalism. But the American firsters, as they're called, vocal as they are, are met by the membership of the Committee to Defend America by aiding the Allies. Now, I'm as much opposed as any man in America to undue concentration of power in the chief executive. And may I say that I did my best to remove that power from the present executive. Personally, I would have preferred to see Congress, whether through this bill or through others, instruct the president to lend or lease these things. I would much prefer to have the impetus to come from Congress than from the executive. It would be truly inspiring for us and for liberty-loving people everywhere if this bill could be adopted with a nonpartisan and almost a unanimous vote. When the bill H.R. 1776, the Lend-Lease Bill as we know it, was introduced January 10, 1941, The debate opens up in Congress. David Walsh, isolationist senator from Massachusetts, says this is risky. He knows once we start arming Britain, we could be pulled into a war in Atlantic. In the Atlantic. Secretary of War Stimson said, We are buying, not lending with this bill, buying our own security. Opponents feel the opposite. Why? Why spend on other countries? Alf Landon says, unless specific details are submitted to Congress, we might be in war before we know it. Let's stop kidding ourselves. The lending of war material, the garden hose scheme, might be better compared to lending a Coke of ice in July in Kansas, with the same hope of getting it back. Landon says, we have a very real interest in British success. And, you know, I do want to point out, in the quick history, we're going to talk about isolationists and interventionists, there's a lot of gray. Landon wants, for instance, to give money to Britain, but that's it and to be able to pull it back whenever we need to. To say our national interest and security rests in Britain's victory is an overstatement, Landon says. Free labor will always whip forced labor. We don't need to go to war to do it. Essentially, Landon's laying it out. Doesn't matter whether Britain or Nazi Germany wins. Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, does not agree. The most serious question today is whether Control of the high sea shall pass into the hands of powers bent on a program of unlimited conquest. For us to withhold aid of victims to an attack would not result in a restoration of peace. Robert Hutchins, president of the University of Chicago. It is impossible to listen to Roosevelt's Lend-Lease Bill speech and not conclude the president seeks to underwrite a British victory, and apparently a Chinese and Greek one too. We're to turn our ports into British naval bases. What if that's not enough? We'll have to get involved. We'll have to send the Navy. And what if that's not enough? Send the Air Force. 
And if that's not enough, if we'll have to send the army if Mr. Churchill wants it. Charles Lindbergh said, I do not believe it's desirable for Americans to control the outcome of European wars. The policy of depleting our own forces to aid England is based on the assumption that England will win. Personally, I do not believe they will. We are sending our armaments abroad, wasting them, and prolonging war. Senator James Burns of South Carolina did not agree. One conquest only whets the dictator's desire for more power. If Britain falls, the United States would stand alone at the brink of peace. Well-meaning people believe that by wishing war away, we can keep war away, but not one of the countries crushed beneath the German war machine wanted war. Senator Arthur Capper of Kansas disagreed. In the early days of our republic, we had a policy of neutrality. Today, we go with the shifting sands of sentiment, dislike for one European nation or another. The same sophistry was used in 1917, something about duty to civilization. Despite this debate, and it's vociferous, Lendlease passes the House, and then it passes the Senate. On the same day it passes the Senate, in March of 1941, Roosevelt signs it. And soon, he'll get on a boat. He'll go to Newfoundland and tell everyone it's for a 10-day fishing trip. After all, he's the president. It's a busy time. And he needs to relax. With friends, perhaps. One friend in particular. The Nazis like the spy ring that they have developed in America, and they want to enhance it. They're always watching everything going on in Germany, including the immigration, especially the immigration in and out of the country from the neutral United States. The Abwehr, their version of the FBI, notices a William Siebold coming to Germany after becoming a U.S. citizen. And they notice that Siebold is skilled at working at factories and he knows his way around manufacturing plants. He comes to visit his mother in Germany, who's ailing, and, needing some work, settles at a job in a German factory. Siebold is a German, and he fought for Germany in World War I, before he came to the United States in the 30s and became a citizen. So when the Abwehr visits and says he can take this opportunity to help his country and go back to the United States and get information for Germany, they expect that he'll help. He doesn't want to. They threaten now. And what they may have threatened, um, different accounts, maybe harm to his mother with drawing medical help from his mother, threatening his family, threatening to put him or his family members in jail. In any case, Siebold agrees now, and he goes through a very quick spy training class. And he's told about the New York network, and especially about this man, Duquesne, who is in New York, and that's the man that you're going to be feeding information to. And Siebold books his trip back to the United States with various information, some devices that he's gotten from the German intelligence agency, but he does something else. Before he leaves, he goes to the U.S. consulate in Cologne, Germany, and tells them what happened. 
and says, I'd like to work with the FBI. They don't believe his story immediately until he pulls out the microphotograph device that the Abwehr gave him to take pictures. The FBI is now contacted, and they give him counter-instructions. Siebold is now a double agent. Glad to have you aboard, Mr. Churchill. It was not the first time an American president had met a UK prime minister. There was George and Wilson, and there was McDonald and Hoover and all of that. But this meeting on the high seas, as Churchill gets off the HMS Prince of Wales and boards the USS Augusta, was the beginning of a change in the relationship between the two countries. And something very important in Britain in particular, the special relationship between the Prime Minister of the UK and the President of the United States, sometimes exaggerated, but at its height, right here. At long last, Mr. President, Churchill says, and the two men embrace. They had met before. They were not leaders of their lands then, in 1928. FDR, as we mentioned, had told reporters he was merely going on a fishing trip, but meets the Prime Minister. Churchill's not advertising his whereabouts to the media whatsoever. Churchill delivers a message from the King to the President. There would be an Atlantic conference established here and a real commitment of American help. First, 50 destroyers, and then plans for much, much more now that Lend-Lease has passed. Pictures were taken for a newsreel but no sound was recorded. The newsreel team could not get it to work. Meanwhile, Admiral Grew in Tokyo was still working on a Japanese-American resolution to the conflict. That image he sees of Churchill and Roosevelt meeting, what if we could get Kanoye and Roosevelt to also meet? Some of the fellows in Cordell Hole's State Department thought that Grew had been in Japan too long. But as Grew floated ideas, words came back that Roosevelt was not uninterested in it. He was intrigued, though he suggested that Juneau, Alaska, and not Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, should be the meeting point for their, the meeting between the two leaders, if it was going to happen. According to Grew and his private secretary, Robert Feary, from who we have information, he kept a diary, there's a possibility that the Japanese might agree to move out of Indochina and give up further advances in China. They're probably not going to let go of Manchuria, the province that they have captured right now, but further advances in China might be stopped if embargoes are lifted. But Kanoya cannot make any of those commitments. He can't get any of those commitments in advance of talks. It will kill the deal. His foreign department is full of leakers, loyal to his rival in politics, Yasuki Mastroka. Mastroka was the one who had led the Japanese into a pact with Germany. And he stepped down. He was made to step down when Hitler invaded Russia. Not part of the plan for the Japanese, who were right on the border of Russia. That had surprised them. Mastroka, despite stepping down, still had many loyalists in the foreign department. What Kanoye knows he can do is get a meeting between the president and not only himself as prime minister, but top military brass who will accompany him. And the emperor is behind his talks. But what he can't do is get commitments, not in advance. They will be leaked out in order to erase support for the deal. 
But once we're in Hawaii or Alaska, deals could be made. This is Fury interpreting. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Artillery fire from Los Angeles to Dallas, Texas. If you could imagine that for a moment, that is just about the line of barrage that Nazi Germany opened up on the Soviet Union as part of Operation Barbarossa. Totally a surprise in June 22nd, 1941. The two countries had signed a non-aggressive pact. Everybody else thought that Russia was basically cooperating. After all, they got parts of Poland for doing it. Three million Wehrmacht soldiers were tasked to invade the lands of present-day Lithuania, Lithuania, Ukraine, Belarus. Hitler wasn't only seeking military victory. He's seeking destruction of the communist idea and the people. Communists are not comrades and won't be afterwards, he makes it clear to his generals. It gets its name from a red-bearded 12th century German king. Barbarossa was a war of extermination. Nazi propaganda refers to the Soviet nation as an opponent that is a Jewish Asiatic force that should be dealt with in no other way than total devastation. This, in effect, is one of the greatest weapons, the propaganda, free of normal military conventions. They completely violate that non-aggression pact, and it's become a war on, quote, criminals. It's disastrous for the surprised Soviets. 450,000 Soviet soldiers are trapped in Kiev alone. All in all, 5 million Soviet troops will be captured, killed, wounded by the Germans. And they'll lose some troops, a fifth of that. But even that fifth will begin the process of a very bloody time for the Germans. But none of that is yet visible. In the year we're talking about, 1941, by August, they reach the outskirts of Leningrad. And civilians are forced to join in the army, build fortifications. After some initial advances on Leningrad are repelled just about 11 miles from the city, Hitler orders that the, the city be starved into submission. Kiev is another target. There is resistance there, and after a group of bombs planned by Soviet agents went off in Kiev after its occupation, Germans go on a punitive raid 
of the city's Jewish population. But the fighting for Kiev and the encirclement of that city is so intense that it slightly stalls the approach to Moscow. Maybe just enough. Americans at this time were rooting for Russia, eager to get news from it. Time magazine says, will Russia hold out? And no one in Washington thinks that Russia is going to last very long. But eventually, as the Nazis are slowed down, Lend-Lease supplies are given not only to Britain, but now to Russia. Food, and most importantly, trucks. Here's what Time Magazine says. By October, it's reported that pessimists from the Roosevelt administration that went to Russia came back optimists. The Russians had struggled in the first few months, but they were stopping the advance. Production was moved to the Urals, and they had a large and able workforce mechanically trained, and industrially experienced. Unless Time Magazine said, we were bamboozled by Russian propaganda, Russia may hold out longer than anyone thinks. J. Edgar Hoover now asks for permission to pursue the Nazi spy ring, and FDR grants it. With this double agent in place, Siebold, they're in good shape. They set Siebold up in a Times Square office, courtesy of the FBI, but the Abwehr does not know this. And for Duquesne and the other German operatives in New York, this is a great thing. Duquesne fears that his own office has long been bugged and there's nowhere safe to talk. This new businessman with this Times Square office is a great place to discuss business, to pass information and to pass photographs and other things. They have no idea that in offices nearby, there are German-speaking FBI agents listening to everything that Duquesne and others tell Siebold. Not only that, on the tip of Long Island, the FBI builds a shortwave station and starts sending radio signals, which are picked up by Germany. They give almost 200 broadcasts of disinformation and or useless information to the Nazis. In September, the ring is busted. Duquesne and 33 agents are captured. A man who fought against the United States and Britain in World War I years ago is an unlikely hero of democracy now. Yet, it's not great for double agent Siebold. The whole experience makes him paranoid for the rest of his life. He's always imagining people watching him. Admiral Greer's plan to put the Japanese Prime Minister together with the American President like Churchill and Roosevelt hits a snag. FDR, initially intrigued, now wants Kanoye to commit to what he cannot, pre-talks before a meeting is set up. He cannot go to Juneau yet and meet with the Prime Minister. He's got to give assurances to America's allies, China, the UK, and now Soviet Russia, about what they would be talking about. Konoye tries, but finds it difficult to do that. The United States has taken over the defense of Iceland as part of the Atlantic Conference, and the USS Greer is on patrol off its coast. A British plane tells the Greer that there is a U-boat nearby. The Greer pursues it. The U-boat will eventually fire upon a United States warship for the first time. This is September 1941. The U.S. and Germany are not at war. Germans said the attack was initiated by the United States. The Navy said the initial attack was made by the submarine. Who do we believe? FDR makes it clear in his address this is an attack on American warship. Her identity was unmistakable. 
She was flying the American flag. Yet the German submarine attacked not once, but twice. You have in those words, not only the words of a president, but a former assistant secretary of the Navy and cousin to another one who served under Wilson when Germans were interfering with American shipping at that time. In spite of what Hitler's propaganda bureau has invented, in spite of what any American obstructionist organization may prefer, to declare the blunt fact is that Germany fired upon the ship with intent to destroy her. FDR will take the Greer opportunity to do what he can in his executive authority and order that any U-boat in waters deemed vital to American defense, perhaps the entire Atlantic, at least the convoy zones, its mere presence of a U-boat is now considered an attack upon the United States. Time Magazine sums it up. We are at war, but we are not at war because only Congress can declare war. Congress listens to FDR. They've listened to him for years, making radio speeches and statements. And it's no longer his way or the highway, the time you're getting to 1941. They don't take his word for it. Admiral Stark, the commander of the USS Greer, is summoned. And before he appears, there's a statement that the Navy releases admitting that Greer pursued the U-boat submarine. It only issued the depth charge when the torpedoes were fired upon it, but it had been pursuing, and pursuing in coordination with a British plane. Stark reveals this in advance of testing. He doesn't want to get caught up in any kind of perjury cause or ch charge or anything like that. Congressional testimony revealed that the Greer pursued the sub for hours, three hours, in fact, and 20 minutes before the U-boat fired a torpedo at it. So as many historians have concluded that Roosevelt's version of, of events initially uh, was not correct, not fully explaining the situation, that by issuing a depth charge designed to take out a U-boat, that the Greer was engaging in a offensive action. Yet what happens in Congress is that Congress helps a quasi-enemy of the United States parse its story in front of the body. Senator David Walsh of Massachusetts makes a big point of this, holding these hearings. He's in charge of the Naval Committee in the Senate, holding these hearings, trying to do everything he can to avoid an Atlantic war. And you get the sense now that Roosevelt's hand is slapped a little here, with, at least with Congress. After some frustrating talks between Prime Minister Kanoye and Admiral Grew, he informs the Americans that he is now out of office. His war minister, Tojo, is the new Prime Minister of Japan. He tries to put the best face on it. After all, he says, talks can still continue because Tojo was one of the war leaders that would have gone to Honolulu if we had that meeting, or Juno if we had that meeting. Corporate America gets behind the cause of American defense. Bell Telephone advertised how ready and alert its operators were for any emergency that might come. They had extra staff to put calls through. And how its telephone crews were laying cable, working west from Omaha to Sacramento, in order to double the nation's long-distance telephone line in a hurry and connect the two coasts of the United States. 
long-distance lines three feet underground, in a furrow 1,600 miles long. Together, these cables would provide more than 500 new telephone talking channels, plus facilities for radio, teletype, and telephoto. Big as this project was, Bell Telephone said, it was just a small part of Bell Systems' share of national defense. Disney is on the ropes. Three failures, and big ones at the box office. Pinocchio was a groundbreaking animation movie in its detail. And then Fantasia, a dizzying display of colors and spectacles. Mickey Mouse, as a sorcerer's apprentice, surrounded by dancing brooms. It's still something we remember today as extremely innovative. It comes out in 1941. But when it comes to the dollars and cents for Walt's company, it's a flop. And it's devastating for the company because they were laying a marker down that animation was a serious art form. But all of that costs a lot. It takes years to produce these films and lots of animators. The other thing that cost, Disney's new Burbank, California studio. And all of this war activity and war talk was lousy for international business. Disney needed a hit, and it needed it now. What do we got in production? It had already released Pinocchio Fantasia, another movie that fails. Dumbo, the little elephant who was all ears. Ah, we got this movie about an elephant with big ears, but it's not coming out till 1943. Not good enough. Rush it into production. Get it out mode. Skip the detail. Get it on screens in 41. Walt Disney's Dumbo brings you a trainload of exciting new characters. Wild animals. Ferocious beasts. Thunderous pachyderms. Jungle giants. Casey Jr., the train with a personality. Don't draw all the humans in the background. Just make them like shadows, a few gray lines. Story about an elephant being bullied. An elephant that has super big ears. But as his small mouse friend will help him with, he discovers that he can also fly. Splash some color in the scenes. And believe it or not, the most delightful Disney sequence you've ever seen, the parade of the pink elephant. Including a trippy, almost psychedelic, pink elephant scene. See Dumbo's magnificent fall to fame, the most sensational climax ever filmed. Dumbo is a smash. The public loves it. It brings in a half million dollars, a lot of clams in those days. In a way, the predictions of the isolationists in Congress did come true. It only takes, you know, Lend-Lease is passed in March. There's a couple of incidents to Robin Moore, the Greer, and it only takes till October for the first American deaths on the Atlantic as a result of German torpedoes. And the first is the Kearney. Kills a few dozen sailors. Roosevelt, after having his hand slapped in Congress, can only give his usual statements. And then at the end of October, from the New York Times, 
The missile that ended the career of the destroyer Reuben James and made her the first United States naval vessel to be lost in the present war struck without warning during the early hours of October 31st, and the cost of the lives of all of her officers and all of her petty officers, except one, who led the 44 enlisted men remaining alive after the blast over the side into three rescue rafts. The James, her bow demolished, sank in about 20 minutes. 20 minutes later, as the dawn began to lighten on the horizon, the remnants of her crew sighted another United States naval vessel, which affected her rescue. The sinking took place in a calm sea with no wind. Survival of many of those who went overside was attributed to an order issued some months ago by the James's master that all men have their life belts at hand at all times. Yes, more than a hundred U.S. sailors are killed, and it's the first ship sunk by Nazi Germany. On November 29th, the plot thickens, and a Nazi form of a fake news campaign begins. The Navy asserted today that an organized campaign was being waged to undermine civilian morale by trading on the grief of survivors of American seamen lost in the Battle of the Atlantic. Secretary Knox made public copies of a letter, which the Navy said had been circulated among the parents of men lost when the destroyer Reuben James was sunk on October 31st. The letter was put out, the Navy Department said, by we, the mothers, mobilized for America, Inc., with headquarters in Chicago. The particular copy which Mr. Knox, the Navy Secretary, made public was forwarded to him by the parents of a man first believed lost on the Reuben James, but later found safe and alive. The parents, writing at a time when they thought their son was dead, told the Secretary, We reject sympathy from such an organization. They belong with the Nazis. Wipe them out of the USA. The names of the parents were not made public. A spokesman said on behalf of the Navy Department that the letter was part of an organized campaign to undermine civilian morale. The copy made public by the Navy said that our sincere and heartfelt sympathy goes out to your entire family in this dark hour of sadness. Nice enough. But then it says... But this tragedy might have been averted had the pleads of millions of our people all over this land been heeded by our officials in Washington. Any movement to avenge these dead by throwing away the lives of millions more of our American men to punish a foreign nation is but a false premise to involve us in a war. The writers said legal experts had advised them that officials could be sued in civil court if they unconstitutionally gave orders which resulted in the death of a member of the armed services. We owe it to our loved dead, to the country for which they died, to call to account those who violated our Constitution and heartlessly placed American men in the danger zone between two warring nations while we are at peace. It is right around this time that the British Foreign Minister, Lord Halifax, visits Detroit A group throws eggs and tomatoes at them. This from Time Magazine. The ambassador, winding up a two-day inspection of Detroit's factories, was diplomatically calling on Detroit's archbishop. Twenty-five women were parading with placards. Remember the burning of the Capitol in the War of 1812. Helping Britain is treason. The organization called the American Mothers had greeted Lord Halifax when he arrived in Detroit. A barrage of eggs and vegetables rose from the crowd. The egg smacked the tall, dignified ambassador. A tomato 
landed at his feet. An uncooked omelet splattered his bodyguard. Detective tried to hurry the ambassador into the building. Said he, Don't hurry, boys. Let them have a good time for their money. Halifax used the occasion to highlight the plight of the British people. My feeling was one of envy, that people have eggs and tomatoes to throw about. In England, these are very scarce. The article is from November 17th, 1941. Just 20 days later, a Senator Gerald Nye of North Dakota is making a speech to an America First crowd. He's condemning Roosevelt's actions. He's full of his usual vim and vinegar, attacking the descent into war. And there's a one of his aides trying to get his attention to maybe, maybe have the senator stop speaking and talk. And uh, he does not. He continues his speech. And then finally goes over to the aide. Those who are looking at Nye in the crowd can see the tenor of his face change. Beverly Slingerland, a teacher in Honolulu, Hawaii Territory, December 7th, 1941, 8 a.m. Eight planes flew over the house. Their big red circles showed up plainly. I can see the smoke pouring up into the air and the sound of guns. Bombs bursting in the water right before us. It keeps me in such a nervous state that I must do something. I went out to take a better look. Great spouts of water rising out of the ocean. I do not know how long it will be before I shall know anything. I can see our ships guarding the entrance to the Honolulu Harbor. At times the bombs fall about these ships. Right now things are quiet but I can still feel the jar of the big guns. Gerald Nye receives the news from that aide that maybe he needs to change his speech because the Japanese have just attacked at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. He goes to the microphone. I have just received the most terrible news, he says. All of these senators mentioned, Walsh, Nye, Wheeler, will be immediate in their support for war against Japan. Senator Daniel K. Inouye, Oahu, Hawaii, December 7th, 1941. We stood in the warm sunshine on the south side of the house and stared out towards Pearl Harbor. Black puffs of anti-aircraft smoke littered the pale sky, trailing away in a soft breeze, and we knew beyond any wild hope that this was no test, for practice rounds of anti-aircraft, which we had seen a hundred times, were fleecy white. And now the dirty gray smoke of a great fire billowed up over Pearl and obscured the mountains and the horizon. And if we listened attently, we could hear the soft carump of the bombs amid the hysterical chatter of the Akak. Then we saw the planes. They came up zooming out of that sea with gray smoke, flying north towards where we stood and climbing into the bluest part of the sky. And they came in twos and threes in neat formations. And if it hadn't been for that red ball on their wings, the rising sun of the Japanese Empire, you could easily believe that they were Americans flying over in precise military salute. I fell back against the building as they drone near, but my father stood rigid in the center of the sidewalk and stared up into that malignant sky. And out of the depths of shock and torment came a tortured cry. You fools. 
On Sunday afternoon, I was resting, trying to relax from the grind of the past weeks and to free my mind from the concern caused by the very grave tones in which the president dictated that Saturday night message. I was rather abstractly looking at a Sunday paper when the telephone rang and Luis Heckmeister said sharply, The president wants you right away. There's a car in the way to pick you up. They just bombed Pearl Harbor. With no more words and without time for me to make a single remark, she cut off the connection. She had a long list of people to notify. Grace Tully, Secretary, Franklin Roosevelt, Washington, D.C., December 7th, 1941. In 20 minutes, I was drawing into the White House driveway, already swarming with extra police and added detail of Secret Service men, with news and radio reporters beginning to stream into the executive office wing and state, war and Navy officials hurrying into the house. Hopkins, Knox, and Stimson were already there with the boss in the second floor study. Hull and General Marshall arrived a few minutes later. The news continued to come in each report more terrible than the last, and I could hear the shocked unbelief in Admiral Stark's voice as he talked to me. The news was shattering. I hope I shall never again experience the anguish and near hysteria of that afternoon. At first, the men around the president were incredulous. That changed to angry acceptance as new messages supported and amplified the previous ones. The boss maintained greater outward calm than anybody else, but there was rage in his very calmness. With each message, he shook his head grimly and tightened the expression of his mouth. Within the first hour, it was evident the Navy was dangerously crippled and the Army and Air Force were not fully prepared to guarantee safety from further shattering setbacks in the Pacific. Within the first 30 or 40 minutes, a telephone circuit was opened from the White House to Governor Joseph Poindexter in Honolulu. The governor confirmed the disastrous news insofar as he had learned it. In the middle of the conversation, he almost shrieked into the phone, and the president turned to the group around him to bark grimly. My God, there's another wave of planes over Hawaii this minute. Mr. Hull... His face white as his hair reported to the boss that the Nomura and Kurosu, the ambassadors, were waiting to see him the exact moment the president called to tell him of the bombing. In a tone as cold as ice, he repeated what he had told the enemy envoys, and there was nothing cold or diplomatic in the words that he used. Knox, whose navy had suffered the worst damage, and Stimson were cross-examined closely on what had happened, why they believed it could have happened, and what might happen next. Shortly before five o'clock, the boss called me to his study. He was alone, seated before his desk, on which there were two or three neat piles of notes containing the information of the past two hours. The telephone was close by his hand. He was wearing a gray sack jacket and was lighting a cigarette as I entered the room. He took a deep drag and addressed me calmly. Sit down, Grace. I'm going before Congress tomorrow. I'd like to dictate my message. It will be short. I sat down without a word. It was no time for words other than those to become part of the war effort. Once more, he inhaled deeply, and then he began in the same calm tone which he dictated his mail. Only his dictation was a little different as he spoke each word incisively and slowly, carefully specifying each punctuation mark and paragraph. 
Yesterday, comma, December 7th, comma, 1941, dash, a day which will live in infamy, dash, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan, period, paragraph. The entire message ran under 500 words, a cold-blooded indictment of Japanese treachery and aggression, delivered to me without hesitation, interruption, or second thoughts. I ask, he concluded, that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, comma, December 7th, comma, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire, period, end. As soon as I transcribed it, the President called Hull back to the White House and went over the draft. The Secretary brought with him an alternative message, drafted by Sumner Wells, longer and more comprehensive in its review of the circumstances leading to the state of war. It was rejected by the boss, and hardly a word of his own historic declaration was altered. Harry Hopkins added to the next-to-last sentence, With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounded determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us, God. The events of 1941, it just seems can tell us a lot about the time that we're going through now where there's kind of a war happening in a distance that we feel pretty passionate about but are not directly involved in but are involved in terms of support and donations and even a, a direct lend lease the actual same name of the congressional bill being used it does not imply that the situation is exactly the same history never does but um, it does, as always, imply that uh, in many ways we've been here before. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We have a Patreon, patreon.com, patreon.com slash mhcbuip. Thank you for all of you who have supported this program through either the premium podcast, the old system, or through the new Patreon that we have. Either way, uh, you're getting uh, some extra episodes or really some leftovers and or previews of episodes. Um, and it's a big help to the program. Thanks for listening.